Greetings, church and friends of the church. Um, Tim again. Uh, we are now in mid to late August, um, more than five months that we've been in this season of wilderness where we're disconnected from what was normal. We're not yet connected to a new normal. We're wandering. We're lost. We're, we're, we are stuck in the in-between, and we're not sure where it will end. Um, this has been, this is the latest in a series of episodes of reflections um, about how we can more deeply understand ourselves and each other as we go through this wilderness time, um, because we can be reshaped. Uh, we can reimagine ourselves as we're not just distracted by going through all the motions of what we think is normal, um, but we can rethink and reevaluate, reflect deeply on how we relate to God and ourselves and to one another during this time. Um, I'll speed through a summary, but uh, do invite anyone um, who's jumping in now to go back and to look at all these videos um, on YouTube or at uh, valleyforgepress.org because it is a connected argument that builds from the beginning. Uh, we've reflected on the posture that we can take in the wilderness, assumptions that we can make about God and ourselves. We've reflected on the natural tendencies that have evolved within every human being as a very physical part of who we are. The three major temptations that come out from those natural tendencies, uh, the result of living um, by that physical nature and these things that are hardwired within us. Um, both individually and corporately, we've started to consider the isms uh, that we develop together as people in society because of our physicality. And all along, we've held on to the need for a spirituality. Um, maybe, maybe for some of us, that comes in the form of religion as we know it. Maybe for others, it's a different, it's a different expression. But room within that place where we form identity, where we form norms and attitudes and decisions for voices other than what those physical tendencies tell us. Um, because that ultimately becomes very self-serving and can become violent. Um, the, last, the first two isms that we looked at are pretty foundational. Um, antagonism as the foundational ism, um, dogmatism um, as you know, adherence to principles of a leader or institution that are put out there as being true um, and, and them demanding our, our fealty um, to them over the, our, our loyalty to our true principles. Um, and how the golden rule spirituality, um, wherever we find that, can be, can be a balancing, an overwhelming voice um, that helps to steer us away from these isms and back toward peace. Um, in this episode, I want to connect the two dots of antagonism and dogmatism and name the dangerous dangerousism that they too easily spawn when they're intermingled, and that's the danger of cultism. Cultism is a regularly occurring result of these human tendencies uh, to turn against others in a posture of fighting, negativity, and tribalistic solidarity, uh, devolving into a dualistic us versus them at all costs kind of mindset. Um, and there is no shortage of examples um, in our history and in our world today. I wonder what kind of associations come to mind for you when you hear the word cult. Maybe uh, for many of you, um, and this is true for me, uh, the first association that the word cult calls forth is one of religious or pseudo-religious groups like the Moonies or 
Jim Jones and the People's Temple and their suicide pact, the Branch Davidians of Waco, uh, Heaven's Gate and the Hale-Bopp Comet and the Kool-Aid. Um, there's a small cult in our town, in our township, um, that hides behind the form of a small Presbyterian church and has brought destruction and pain and division and separation into the lives of several families that we've met just in our few years of being here. Maybe your association of cultism is a particularly violent uh, cult of personality. And you think of folks like Charles Manson, or you think of Sonny Barger, Barger in the Hells Angels. Um, maybe uh, we feel like um, even though these kinds of cults are always present out in the world somewhere, they don't affect us or the people we know. They affect the unlucky few, a very tiny percentage of the population. And so for most of us, the worry about cultism is probably a distant one, if it's even on the radar at all, with the assumption that it's, it's someone else's struggle, but not ours. But um, I want us to consider um, in this episode uh, and moving forward, if we're willing to honestly, humbly, critically reflect on what makes for cultism and to critically self-reflect on how cultism is a natural temptation nurtured in human life and context uh, by these tendencies toward fighting and negativity and tribalism that we can see with, you know, opened eyes, maybe the scales can fall away, how cultism is not just a distant worry for an unfortunate few, but as a very present reality and concern for all of us, and, and I do mean all of us, cultism is offered rich soil wherever our animalistic physical tendencies rule, wherever they are unchecked by a spirituality that tells us a different story about who we are and who others are around us. Uh, a man named Robert J. Lifton was a professor at Harvard. He wrote in the early 90s about three primary characteristics or common features of dangerous communities uh, or cultism. The first is the centrality of a charismatic leader. Dangerous or cultish leaders often um, share many common characteristics um, and approaches and tendencies beyond just their charisma, although that's the first. Beyond that, um, he writes that leaders gradually but steadily become the object of the people's worship. The dogmatism grows as the leader demands adherence to the leader's principles. And therefore, um, the principles that originally gave the group their identity and their direction lose their power until they're completely sidelined. Along with this shift away from founding principles to the leader's principles, uh, there develops a, a complete lack of tolerance for questioning or critiquing the leader. The leader always is right. The leader is always the exclusive source of truth. Any competing truth claims are rejected as false or enemy, and those who disagree or question are publicly shamed by the leader. Leaving the group uh, to the leader is an unforgivable sin, and the leader refuses to include anyone who steps out of line and doesn't adhere. Dangerous leaders become increasingly authoritarian. 
and have decreasing accountability until there is none. The leader is increasingly driven by money, power, and sex, and there is no meaningful, truthful public disclosure regarding budget or expenses or the depths of power accumulated or sexual pursuits. The leader goes to great lengths to keep these truths from coming to light, all the while demanding blind trust from followers regardless of what they see or experience. The second common feature um, that comes out of this um, research and teaching from the early 80s of um, dangerous or cultish community. So the first is a charismatic leader who uh, takes on these characteristics as we just heard. The second common feature of cultish community is coercive persuasion or thought reformation. You know, sometimes more truly or colloquially referred to as brainwashing. The driving force behind the leader's ability to coerce the people to think differently is fear. As we've been considering in this series, fear is a powerful force because it triggers these tendencies that have evolved with every, every single one of us. A false or a manufactured threat, one that is, we're told is there but isn't really there, elicits the same physical reaction within us as an actual real threat. Threats of the boogeyman or whatever false claim there is out there can trigger us to get ready to fight, to adopt negative associations about others, and to tribalize along with those who are most like us so we feel like we're not going to have to fight alone. Fear makes those three major temptations that we all naturally face that much more tempting. Temptation to self-elevate and to make myself the absolute priority. The temptation to seek authority and privilege over and against others, to gain the leverage. Um, to, to take as much of the pie as I can before someone else does, and that temptation to co-opt God and adopt a dogmatism or a worldview that includes, includes a view of God that, that is self-serving to me. And so dangerous leaders wield fear like a weapon. They stir up unreasonable fears about impending catastrophes, persecutions, conspiracies which make followers feel threatened and helpless and absolutely dependent upon the leader to rescue them or to protect them, and make followers united in tribalism and in antagonism against the perceived enemies or threats. The third common feature within a dangerous or cultish community is uh, exploitation and abuse. The economic, social, sexual, any other kind of exploitation of followers by the leader and the leader's elite inner circle. This is really the culmination of the cultish leadership process. This is the pudding in which there is the proof. While followers are hyper-focused on adhering to the dogmatism and turning against the perceived enemy and tribalistic antagonism, they are blinded to the harm being caused to them by the leader. They do what is in the best interests of the leader uh, rather than in their own interests. They, uh, those who are poor give to those who are rich. Those who are surrounded by the social supports of family and friends become isolated as they spurn, distance, and disconnect themselves from those family and friends who don't pledge the same loyalty to the leader. Those who are vulnerable and impressionable become victims 
of the leader's selfish desires and exploits. And again, followers learn to turn a blind eye to all these exploitations and to only focus on their right adherence and on their antagonism toward those external threats. They aren't allowed to focus on the leader. When we put this all together, dogmatism that nurtures leader worship and a departure from centering or founding principles, coercive thought reform that leverages fear and nurtures antagonism, the abuse and exploitation of followers while they're distracted by their focus on adherence and perceived enemies. We can begin to see how cultism is more prevalent reality in the human story, not just a worry for some, but a central part of our shared human experience. In the world of politics and authority, Hitler, Mao, the Ayatollah, Saddam, Mussolini, so many others were leaders who co-opted the loyalty of the people, moving their adherents away from founding principles, grounding principles, turning them into a wholly different kind of people and exploiting the people for their own benefit or to the benefit of their inner circle. When it comes to politics, now just as ever, maybe now more than ever, we must, with honesty and humility, consider how cultism has become part of our politics. Do we have leaders who increasingly demand our worship and our, adher our blind adherence, who have moved us gradually, gradually away from our founding principles, our central principles of what makes us truly American, who have used fear-mongering to trigger adherence and tribalism, who have exploited those who follow them, causing harm to them rather than their good, rather than improving their lives, and, and all the while having no tolerance for any kind of critique or questioning. In the world of faith, particularly particular communities of every branch of faith have become cultish, um, as the dogmatism of leaders takes the central place where the founder's principles are decentralized and overlooked, and where fear-driven antagonism is a characteristic of that community. And that may be a present in physical antagonism, which births movements like the Christian Crusades and fundamentalist terrorism uh, of every kind of religion, or it may be uh, more of a, a, a spiritual terrorism, which has led to the hateful labeling, judgment, condemnation of those perceived as threat or enemy, <laughs> condemning, judging and condemning them to eternal damnation. And along with that, all the physical harm that comes to those who are judged in that way spiritually. In the business world, in nonprofit corporations, in community organizations, in schools, in the educational systems, where are we seeing loyalty and adherence to the principles of a leader rather than to the central grounding founding principles? Where are we seeing fear used to stir up antagonism, tribalism, and division? Where are we seeing the leader benefiting from the system more than the followers? Where are we seeing this unholy marriage of antagonism and dogmatism? Cultism is a dangerous force. In this series, we're naming the reality that these isms are destructive forces that break down our society, that compromise the ideal, that call us away from the principles that are inherent in the various layers of our humanity, the principles of the golden rule in our faiths, the principles of life, liberty, and happiness for all people in our politics, the principles of meaningful work and living wages in our businesses, the principles of equity, inclusion, sufficient education for all students in our school systems. Cultism relegates principles that would bring about the common good in which all can flourish, and it replaces them with principles that benefit the leader. 
But I return to the central claim of this whole series that I'm making, which is that a grounded and golden rule-centric spirituality can be the remedy to our social ills, can help us to right the ship as it enables us to overcome uh, these hardwired animalistic tendencies within us um, that allow us, even while we try to live with the best of intentions, to fall into dangerous cultism in our faith, political, and social layers of our lives. For me, my spirituality is grounded in my Christianity, with the conviction that in Jesus we see the model for healthy and safe human leadership. Cult expert uh, Rick Ross names characteristics of safe or non-cultish leaders. Leaders who answer questions without becoming judgmental or punitive. Transparency in disclosing information about the self, about money, power, sex. Sharing decision-making and encouraging accountability and oversight. Refusing to vilify or excommunicate former followers. Encouraging connectedness among families and friends, regardless of whether or not they agree and, and they're followers of that same leader. Encouraging critical thinking and individual autonomy. Admitting with honesty and humility failings and mistakes. Accepting constructive criticism and advice. And refusing to be the only source of truth to the exclusion of all else. Instead, valuing dialogue and the free exchange of ideas. I see this in Jesus. Jesus was questioned constantly by Pharisaical Jewish leaders and Roman authorities, but never turned against them with antagonism. He spoke his truth with conviction, but he, he did not lambast anybody for disagreeing or refusing to accept his truth. He welcomed them. He shared meals with them, brought about healing to them and their families. The Gospels talk about people walking away from his movement after really difficult or challenging teachings. And it never says anything about him screaming, yeah, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. Now you're our enemy. He never said anything like that. Instead, he told a parable of going out as a caring and compassionate shepherd in hopes of finding and restoring one who walked away, a sheep who walked away into the fold. He never sought wealth or power or sex with a self-serving drive, but instead modeled that the most meaningful kind of life is one in which we love and serve one another. He taught his followers to admit their mistakes with honesty and humility and to seek reconciliation and forgiveness as the top priority, even, even more so than religious devotion. His mode of teaching and acting was collaborative. He sought to educate and empower others for the sake of the common good by initiating an experience together and then having a dialogue that reflected on all that he had learned. And in our expression of Christianity, we surround ourselves with reminders of his leadership, his safe and non-cultish leadership, a table around which all were invited to a meal with unconditional hospitality, regardless of their shortcomings, a font with which we baptize and recognize the inclusion of God of, of all persons uh, standing clean and new before God and before the community. A candle that burns as a reminder of the peace of the kingdom that is our ultimate hope. 
His leadership was the kind of leadership, the followership in his community was the kind of followership that is required in order for the common good to flourish instead of the cultish leadership and followership that we've known all too well in our life together. The flourishing of the leaders and the elite while the majority are ignored, exploited, oppressed, kept in this state of distracting dogmatism and antagonism and infighting. This is the kind of spirituality that must be the loudest voice in that place where attitudes and norms, decisions and words are formed within us. Who might be that voice for you that speaks louder than the cultish leaders within your spirit? What voice can you um, listen to that will call you back to the foundational principles that make you who you truly want to be? With honesty and humility, I invite us to ask all these questions that loosen the grip of cultism upon us. For our future depends on it. As we close, I want to say to all that we need not feel any shame if we sense that this is in any way true for us. It's an indictment of cult cultish leaders who prey upon us and about the, the imperfection of our physical tendencies. It's not an indictment of anybody's eternal moral standing. If you uh, disagree in any way, I love you. I'm your friend and not your enemy. I think that we belong together and that we don't belong fighting with one another. And I would be glad to talk with anyone who wants to further reflect on this together. So please reach out. Stay safe, stay home, wear a mask. Peace be with you all.